The scripture reading is from John 11:17 through 44. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she said this, he, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said on this account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with the linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Good job. Great job. It's a lot of reading. It's fantastic. She sings, she reads. What else, you know? Um, <clears throat> hey, I'm Cliff. Um, Really excited to be back here at North Cross again for the third time, um, and provided I don't blow it this morning, uh, I should be back again next month. So, uh, well, it's, that's not a given, people. So, let's be real. Um, man, I'm going to pray. Jesus, we love you. Um, God, help us to love you more. God, I just think about the ways that I am struggling this morning. Um, that are so insignificant compared to the ways that others are struggling, um, even in this body. But God, I love, um, I love how infinite you are, that you can sit with each of us in um, 
the sacred spaces of our own grieving and um, things that are big and small uh, and that you have time for each of us. Lord Jesus, please be honored um, in, this, uh, in this time in your word, Lord. And uh, I just pray that the words of my heart, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, if you looked at me, you would, pro- you would probably assume, hey, there's a guy that grew up in a subdivision. You would be wrong. Don't let the loafers fool you. I grew up on a farm. Brant Trace Farm, an old dairy farm on the north side of Greensboro, North Carolina, that had been uh, subdivided into lots for families to build homes on. (laughs) Stereotypes are hurtful. My dad uh, grew up or was born in Louisiana uh, on, Shang- on the Shangaloo, um, which if you know where that is, bless you, Rand McNally. Um, but, uh, but he always wanted to live in a heavily wooded lot, except the part of the farm that we bought in the subdivision uh, was open field. And, uh, and so his answer to that was that we were going to buy over a thousand pine tree saplings. Nothing says North Carolina like buying a bunch of pine tree saplings. <laughs> anyway, um, so I was about three years old, and uh, and we decided we were going to spend weekend after weekend after weekend planting these pine tree saplings, which, by the way, came in the mail. They came in the mail, like in boxes, and they were like this tall. And so what we would do over and over again, and as a three-year-old, I wanted to help my dad, um, but I I couldn't, I I wasn't strong enough to like pick the shovel or to use the Maddox or any of those things, and my hands weren't calloused and manly like they are now. Um, And so my dad came up with a job for me. He would dig the hole, and then he would take the dirt, we would take the dirt that came out of said hole, and it would be in this pile. And then my dad had these mountains of yellow bags that had a black cow on the front. And he would say, Cliff, I want you to take what's in this black cow bag with your hands, and I want you to take it with your hands and mix it together with the dirt. I didn't know what it was at the time. I couldn't read. It was just a picture of a black cow on the front. Um, but I did know this is that I wasn't allowed to eat before I had washed my hands. Um, but mixing that, it was manure. It was, it was poop. That's what it was, in case you didn't get that. Um, but, uh, but mixing this manure in with the dirt, then we would put the dirt back into the hole because that's productive, right? We just took this dirt out. So then we would put the dirt back in the hole And then we would put this little pine tree sapling in the dirt in the manure, heavy concentrations of manure. And my parents actually still live in that same house that I was brought home from the adoption agency and I'm adopted. Um, And uh, they still live in that house. And all of those trees have taken over the three acres of the farm that they bought. And they're 30 and 40 and 50 feet high. 
And I wonder if I could tell them if they would know that they were planted in poop. I wonder if that would make them insecure or something. The, the message and the lesson here is that we think that life flourishes in clean and sterile environments. But in fact, the two most fertile soils on planet Earth are manure and ash. That's why the side of Mount St. Helens, like within a year of it erupting and just blowing a hole in the side of a mountain, was a full field of wildflowers. That's why that after a forest fire rips through um, woodlands, that it's replaced immediately with flowers and life that springs up in the ashes. That's why when you're trying to plant crops or trees that you want to live for a long time, you plant them in manure. Literally, crap and the burned down particles of life are the most fertile, life-giving soils on planet Earth. And the Lord steps into our lives and honestly looks for the dung and the ash of our lives to plant his kingdom seeds in. When Jesus shows up in Mark, at the beginning of Mark, and he says, behold, the time is near, the kingdom of God is at hand, like, he, he basically steps into fallen creation, draws a circle around himself, and says, like, everything inside the circle is the way that God meant it to be. Everything outside the circle isn't. And then he goes about the rest of his life walking into broken and hurting, burnt out, dunged on situations and bringing the kingdom of heaven and all of its glory and power into those situations. And this is so opposite from the way that we um, Christians want to shape healthy environments for spiritual growth. We want music that's safe for the whole family. We want school environments where, where we don't where we can really hone in and focus. And I'm not knocking anybody's educational choices. The most well-adapted kids I've met in the last 10 years are all homeschool kids. I'm not, I'm not doubting that. I think it's because they, don't, they can actually look you in the eye instead of uh, being on tablets and stuff like that. Um, they're the ones that are most capable of holding a real conversation. Um, and uh, even though I would be terrible at homeschooling, it's very tempting. Um, very, very tempting. Because I'd like for my kids to turn out that way. But we want sterile and safe environments. Operating rooms are sterile. Do you know why operating rooms are sterile? It's so things don't grow there. But things grow in messy situations, hurting situations, burnt out situations, dung, poop situations. And it's this story of Jesus in John chapter 11, where we see Jesus once again walking headlong into the most burned down, manure-filled situation of life on this planet. And we see how he responds with weeping. So there's kind of three layers that I want to go through today in John chapter 11. The first is the answer to stop our weeping. 
The second is the answer of our weeping. And the third is the weeping of God as the answer. So let's pick this up in verse 17, as was read. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. Bethany was near Jerusalem. We'll skip down. Uh, so he comes. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Then Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus then said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son, who is coming into the world. So Jesus comes to Bethany and immediately meets Martha. It strikes me. Um, that every time that we meet these two sisters, we have a penchant for wanting to identify with Mary uh, over Martha. Mary is 100% heart and drive. She's emotional, but she consistently lets that emotion drive her to an intimacy with and a dependency on Jesus. Martha, however, is dutiful, practical, and principled. Mary seems more fun, more free. Like the girl in uh, the 90s Jars of Clay song, uh, Love Song for a Savior. In open fields of wildflowers, she breathes the air and flies away. She thanks the Jesus for the daisies and the roses. No simple. Some of y'all are going back right now, and you're like, come on. That song was not written about a Martha. If it was written about a Martha, it'd be like, she's in the kitchen cooking muffins. She's really sweaty and she's mad. She calls her sister and says, get off of your keister. Leave all the teacher. One day you'll understand. I want to fall in love with Martha's not really as cool. But each time we meet these sisters, I can't help but think that Martha is presented as the main character because, frankly, we're all way more Martha than we are Mary. Particularly in our denomination, we're pretty satisfied with being Martha in this story. Her brother has died, and it wasn't sudden. And when given the chance to answer the catechism-ish question about the resurrection, she answers correctly. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. My oldest son, Keller, right now, is uh, he's at Stonebridge, and he's going... Uh, through the class um, uh, to be confirmed into the church. Uh, and he's learning the answers to all these sorts of questions. This strikes like a catechism question. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. But I may be reading into this the wrong way, but I sense that this answer was delivered with a sigh of resignation from Martha. I mean, wouldn't you? Yes. All of us in here, we live on the opposite side of that first Easter Sunday from Martha and Mary. Where, you, where we have been told and attest to the fact that death is conquered and Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. But just being honest with you, I haven't ever seen somebody rise from the dead. I mean, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it, have you? And in this congregation, North Cross, which seems to have a, seen a disproportionate amount of cancer and death, and sickness, 
We know the right things. We've got the right answers. And we try to uh, live the right way in light of those right beliefs. But when it comes to the grief and the fear and the pain that besieges us in our lives, I wonder, do we dare to face it? To stare the really hard realities of manure and ash of our lives square in the face. Look, when you're hiking in the woods, I was thinking about this this week, when you're hiking in the woods, there are frequently ravines to traverse, right? The downhills, the uphills. They form naturally, and there's something usually at the bottom of the downhill before you get to the uphill. What is it? A creek, right? I mean, the water, there's gravity. Gravity is a different sermon. Um, but the water falls, rolls downhill, and a creek will form in the ravine. And when we're hiking, what we do is we take the switchbacks down the hill, or maybe we just bomb it and go straight to the bottom. Todd. Um, we get to the bottom, we get to the creek, and when we come to it, we don't step in it, we jump over it, right? And then we start working our way back up the other side. Um, I think that when we get to the bottom uh, and we jump over the creek, um, if we're not careful, our theology, which is true, can be, a, can be an escape, a leaping over the creek in order to not soak our, our shoes and make the climb back out harder. What's more is that in this adventure with Jesus called life, we didn't choose to take the downhill when it comes to death and all that we fear the most. In fact, we would have gone any other way if we could. And honestly, um, when we get taken down that path by our good and beautiful and trustworthy and gracious God, we're pretty ticked with him for taking us down that path. And we don't want to be angry with him. And so we take the backpack of things that we know to be true and we tighten the straps and we leap over the creek. And we start working our way back up the other side, which is what it seems that Martha does. And you know what, y'all? I love, I absolutely love and appreciate that Jesus has zero rebuke for Martha. None. She's answered correctly. And she's correct. But I wonder if her correctness corrects the path of her heart. Maybe it does. We don't know. But then verses 28 through 34. When Jesus had said this, uh, and he called, when, when, she, when she had said this, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly, uh, and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise and go quickly, uh, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Enter Mary. Mary starts off her, her discourse with Jesus identically to Martha. Same exact phrase. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Word for word, the exact same phrase, but she stops. There's no, but even now, 
Mary isn't looking at the path back up the hill on the other side. She just plops herself right down there in the heart of the creek of grief and weeps. And this is where the story picks up pace rapidly. Jesus sees her weeping. He hears and sees others weeping. Jesus is deeply moved, indignant even in his spirit. And then he says he is deeply troubled, which we will hear that phrase again in one more chapter where Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, as John starts the direct movement of his gospel to the cross. Look, North Cross, I, please know that I'm not trying to tell you what type of church to be when it comes to grief. I'm speaking to you today as individuals. And I want to beg you and encourage you, as one counselor encouraged me, to welcome my grief, to welcome my angst, to welcome my anger, and to sit with it. Because I think that one of the least helpful things that we can say to a person in the throes of immeasurable pain is to say, quote, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> that can't be true. None of us can know each other's sorrows. We are all like the cross cuts of trees with the rings that tell the stories of drought and fires and years of floods and heavy rain. For trees that are planted closely together like a church, the experience of those seasons may be similar to the other nearby trees that have weathered them, but none of those cross sections will be identical. Our grief is our own sacred, unique experience. But this grief all over the Bible is held to be wildly fertile soil for kingdom seeds of hope to be planted in. After all, it's the trees in the woods that are planted by the creeks that grow the tallest. Psalm 126 verses 5 and 6 says this, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It is probably possible that the right things we know about Jesus, the resurrection, the life, the truth, the way, which we rely on to get up the other side from the bottom of the ravine of grief, can be a defense against actually being led out of the ravine by Jesus himself. And Mary is not getting out of the bottom without Jesus leading her out, which is exactly what he does. Mary experiences the same things to be true that Martha knows to be true, but Mary experiences them differently because she faces in this story, faces her grief, her sadness, her despair, face on. There's this thing that happens, right, where, where we know the right answer, but the right answer is on the near side of a complex situation. The right answer is just as true on the near side of complexity as it is on the far side of complexity. But on the near side of complexity, the right answer is annoying and shallow and thin. But on the far side, it is rich and full and deep. And we can know every right thing that there is to know theologically about life with Christ and life on this earth and where we're headed when we die. We can know those right things on the near side of the complex, befuddling situations of this life. But we don't really know them until God mercilessly, mercifully takes us through complexity. And as my, my friend Libby, uh, when she was 25 years old, 
discovered she had a stage four cancer, wrote a blog that got a lot of following um, titled Don't Waste Your Cancer. As she wrote about learning the, the things that were true that had always been true, but learning them deeply, passing through complexity. Something bad happens to you. You say, hey, God has a plan for that. Man, when you're on the near side of complexity with that, that is the, one of the most annoying things you can hear. But then you come through on the other side and you find yourself wanting to say, say that to other people because you found out that it was true, but it just hits different. Mary discovers Jesus leading her out of the ravine, the creek of grief. So Martha starts with the answer to stop her weeping. Mary comes in with the answer of weeping, but there's more. Verse 35, Jesus wept. When you read Jesus wept, it begs the question in the loudest possible voice of why? Why would Jesus weep there? I've heard many explanations, and most of them sound pretty good. One of the theories of why Jesus wept is that Jesus is heartbroken for his friend. And that's an all right theory. He's sad. He's just like us. We would be sad about a loss like this, and so is he. But the onlookers, we're told, struggle with this. Some say, in line with this theory, look how much he loved him. But then they're quickly answered by others who say, could, it not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? What's more, why would Jesus weep if he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus in mere moments? I mean, don't you think that if you were Jesus and this was the point that you would have kind of sauntered forwards right now and told everyone, it's going to be okay. I'm going to dry the tears from your eyes. Watch this. But the text and the vantage point of the reader pretty quickly dismisses that theory as to why Jesus wept. Theory number two, Jesus is so moved by the weeping of Mary and others at the tomb that he's overcome. This seems great, right? Because look at his humanity. Look at how far God would condescend to his people as to weep beside them. Look, Jesus weeps with you. The empathy, the camaraderie in pain, his humanity, fully God and fully man. What a display. Jesus weeping, the friend of sinners. How immensely kind of him to feel what we feel. So Jesus is called Wonderful Counselor. My wife is going through uh, getting her master's in Christian counseling, and she's learning a lot of things. One thing that she's learned and kind of come back to me about is that she's learned that when someone is crying, when someone is weeping, it actually isn't helpful for the counselor to weep with them as well. It's, it's actually a, a, a vein of uh, something called countertransference, where, where you will actually kind of take the attention off of the person who's grieving. You know, when, when someone is, is weeping, they're really weeping, you weep with them, then all of a sudden they have to care about you. And then they feel bad that their sorrow has made you sorrowful. And so to be a good counselor does not actually mean to weep when someone is weeping. To let them have that sacred space. Um, and so I think that Jesus is not weeping just to be empathetic. Theory number three. 
Jesus is deeply moved by fallen creation. Now, this one seems great, too, because here is God, the builder and the architect, looking at the bleak ending of life on this earth and essentially screaming through tears. It's not supposed to be this way. It's simultaneously an affirmation of creation intent and a condemnation of the fallen state of things. But since his birth, Jesus has had a thoroughly immersive experience of the fallenness of this world. And yet up to this point, we have no record of him being moved to weeping like this. I'm not saying that any of these theories are wrong, like wrong, wrong. But they just all seem to fall short to me. Why would Jesus weep? So I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about why, what's the difference between crying and weeping? Because there's a word for cry in Greek, and there's a word for weeping in Greek. Like it could have said Jesus cried, but they don't. They say he wept. Think about the times in your life where you've wept versus the times that you've cried. All right? Like when I cry, generally it's because of one impulse is moving in, uh, in such a way that it moves me. It's, it's one impulse, one thing. But the thing is about crying is that I can generally stop crying by taking my focus off the stimulus and I can escape it, which kind of shows that it was this kind of like one pinpointed thing that was making me cry. But weeping happens in the times when it's happened to me because I am simultaneously besieged by many stimuli and realities crashing on me at the same time. Weeping to me is a flood crashing out of me because of a flood that's crashing in me. A flood of hundreds of thoughts, memories, dreams flashing through my soul in an intense and focused moment. And so it makes me wonder, and I could be wrong, what was it that crashed on Jesus in that moment? I wonder, and this is, this is my wondering, but I wonder if inside of Jesus, he looked at that tomb surrounded by the cacophony of weeping and that he had the entire history of death pass through his soul. I mean, Jesus had this time-defying ability to say things about himself. Before Abraham was, I am. He could say, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He could say, I am the law of Moses. So I wonder, I wonder if he heard his father say to his first little boy, if you eat the fruit of this tree, you'll surely die. To which Adam must have said, what is God? I wonder if he saw a beautiful woman looking at a tree and listening to a serpent and then the bite. I wonder if he saw her sons, Cain and Abel, in a field as one raised his arm against the other. Or if he saw Lamech harden his heart after a vengeful strike on a young man. I wonder if he saw thousands drowning and heard screams and pounding fists against a giant boat door. I wonder if he heard screams of Sodom and Gomorrah as sulfur rained down on them. I wonder if once again in Jesus' ears it echoed the, peop the, the screams of his people in Egypt and the cries of mothers as their babies were ripped from them. I wonder if he saw his chosen leader Moses strike down an Egyptian. I wonder if he saw a house crumble on blinded Samson. I wonder if he saw Saul 
and his beautiful son, Jonathan, impaled on spears on a hillside. I wonder if he saw the shock in Uriah's eyes as his fellow shoulders pulled back as they approached the city's walls. I wonder if he heard the trampling boots of Assyrians and Babylonians and Greeks and Romans marching into the land that was promised to Abraham to decimate his wayward people. I wonder if he saw his dad, Joseph, lying in a casket or if he heard the ax fall on his dear and faithful cousin, Jonathan. And in that moment, knowing full well what soon awaited him and for what purpose he came, and even if he saw your grieving and the grieving of billions of deaths into the future, if Isaiah chapter 25 rang into his mind, that incredible prophecy that says in verses 7 and 8, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. So Mary had the courage to actually sit in the creek of grief. But I believe that Jesus plunged far deeper. Because his journey was not simply down a hill through a creek to another side. If our weeping is sitting in a creek, his was plunging to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. And he comes back. And as a foretaste, as a foretelling, Jesus brings Lazarus back. But I really don't think that it was about Lazarus. This is, through the weeping of Jesus, the answer that death will be swallowed up forever. Death will die. I think that one of the hardest to believe truths is that through the deepest possible grief, the covering that's cast over all people, the veil over the nations, that Jesus is here in this story affirming in the face of it all that he is the one who has been sent to swallow up death forever. As with other miracles, this one results in an intensified, redoubled effort on the part of mankind to put Jesus to death. As it says that many of the Jews left um, and went from uh, and went on and plotted how to kill him. Um, by ransoming Lazarus from death, Jesus brings the sentence of death squarely on himself. And John wants us to see the direct correlation in this. But through the weeping, Jesus is presented as the one in the psalm that says, he who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come back with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Because of Jesus' weeping, he brings back sheaves, mountains of the fruit of his watery, painful seeds for the sower. Because the weeping of God is the answer. We see Jesus moved many times in scripture. However, we only see him move so deeply twice. Once is before he raises Lazarus, and the second is before he goes to his own death from which he knows he will rise. We can only assume that there is something in Jesus encountering and overcoming 
this last enemy to be destroyed that resonates with the, the thickest bass strings of the instrument of his soul that causes them to reverberate in a way that shakes the foundations of the earth. And then Jesus rises. He rises. The greatest earthly miracle that we tend to only talk about once a year. I mean, we're so much more willing to talk about Jesus walking on the water, turning water to wine, healing people, giving sermons on mounts, all of that stuff. Jesus rose from the dead. Are you serious? Jesus rose from the dead. The first, the, like, the firstborn of the dead. He plunges to the bottom, to the bottom, bottom, bottom of grief. And then he emerges, he rises. Can you imagine the moment? The moment that happened in history, in a place, in physical flesh. Can you imagine the moment, that first breath again? His reopening eyes and scarred hands, removing the head covering, folding it neatly, and getting up again. And how the rocks of the tomb must have excitedly whispered, It's all true. It's all true. I love how uh, Andrew Peterson, one of my heroes, imagines this moment in the lyrics of his song, His Heartbeats, which I'll share with you. He says, His, his heartbeats. His blood begins to flow, waking up what was dead a moment ago. And his heart beats. Now everything has changed because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins. And his heart beats. He breathes in. His living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out. He is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us is a lion ready to roar. So he took one breath and put death to death. Where is your sting, O grave? How great is your defeat? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He must reign until no enemy is left. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And his heart beats. He will never die again. I know that death no longer has dominion over him. And so my heart beats with the rhythm of the saints. As I look for the seeds the king has sown to burst up from their graves. What I want for you today is to encourage you. To encourage you to stare your grief in the face. To not run from it. Because of the resurrection. Because of Jesus' victory over death. And it feels so thin, me just saying it here. But because of Jesus' victory over death, we are going to rise from the dead. And we can grieve, and we can mourn, and we should. We shouldn't just run to these right answers that we know that we know, right? But as Jesus faced the realities, we can face the realities. And so, death, I would like to have a few words with you. When you come into our lives uninvited, you rattle our windows. You are an impolite visitor. But, death, do you think that you have won the battle? 
Did you think that you could render us hopeless? Did you think that you could silence our rejoicing simply because you have made us shed some tears? You may take our sight, our voice, and our breath, but we will still be preaching. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all, there will be a bodily resurrection. There will be a new creation. Everything sad will be untrue. So we can lean into mourning. We can welcome it. And because of that, we can sit in the creek of our grief knowing that our Jesus is plunged far deeper into it than we can fathom or will ever have to. And he has emerged victorious. And he's given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit. It's all true. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that I pray that for those who need these words today, that um, that they will fall in fertile soil. That's, that the tears and the weeping of today will um, sprout seeds. And God, I pray for those of us who don't need this as badly today, um, that you will somehow store it away in us, so that when you lead us down the downhill of the path that you have us on. And we come to the creek, and we won't just try to hop over it, but that we will sit in it with you, trusting, knowing that you have defeated all that we fear the most. And we must only put ourselves at your feet like Mary, and look to find you weeping, and to know what seeds spring up that you have sown, and that we are yours and you are ours, and that we will be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.